0: For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we trust that you do, but if you don't, there are pew few Bibles and uh, the scripture location is on page 1014. We want you to follow along because it's important that you be that you read it and hear it together. We have been in this passage for about 3 weeks now. The goal here this morning would be to complete through verse 17. And so we will that's our focus. Verse 13 Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. In verse 18, he moves to talk about the Redeemer. And then in verse 22, he talks, begins to explain to us how to remove the ignorance. We read the word of God. So let's go to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning as we've just sung, Jesus paid it all. There is no to us, Father, minor sin. There's none to you, obviously. All sin has been paid in full. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved us and that you cared for us while we were still in our sins, and so this morning, Father, we pray that you would reveal to us by the Scriptures why it is necessary for us to be holy. In Jesus' name, we make this prayer. Amen. So, when we commenced First Peter a few uh, weeks ago, now we focused in the first twelve verses on hope the hope that is in the gospel. And now from verse 13 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2, we are looking at the holiness that is in the gospel. You see, first there is hope, and then there's a requirement that hope brings, which is holiness. A few weeks ago, we looked at distractions, and one of the reasons that we don't live holy lives set apart lives is because we're easily distracted. Now, Peter is talking here about living non-conforming lives, lives that do not conform to the world. So how does that take place? That's what he's explaining in the latter part of chapter 1 into the first part of chapter 2. If you would, the first slide, brother. And we closed out with uh, actually this slide and the next slide last Sunday. We'll just kind of review them for, to bring you up to date. We have some guests this morning, too. This will hopefully set the, uh, set the scene for where we are. The thing I want you to focus on this morning is that very last bullet, obedience. Because remember, we read... Here he says in verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former of lust as in your ignorance. We were looking at three words. We were looking at obedience. We were examining conformity and also talking about ignorance. They are the three key elements that are found in this passage. So the last bullet explains it this way. Obedience is the believer's pattern for holiness. And because it's the pattern for holiness, it means that we will live non-conforming lives. When we obey the Holy Spirit, a pattern is established by Scripture. We don't obey the Spirit of God without understanding the Scripture. The Scripture then removes ignorance. Peter talks about it here. Paul talks about it a number of times in his uh, epistles as well. A pattern is established by Scripture which removes ignorance. And when ignorance is removed toward obedience, it motivates us to live without conforming to lifestyles that are inconsistent with God's holiness. Now that's a mouthful, but basically it's, it's, it simply can be applied by understanding that there is no holiness without immersion into the Word of God. There is no holiness without exposure to the preaching of the Word of God. There is no holiness without exposure to the teaching of the Word of God. How does God make us holy in Jesus Christ? Through the Word. Next slide. Now, we defined holiness for you last Sunday. There's a simple definition. Wayne Grudem has described it this way. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin. That's one of the primary elements of it. And, secondly, Grudem says, he is devoted to seeking his own glory. He's not only separated from sin... But he's devoted to seeking his own glory in the creation that he has made. Now, R.C. Sproul, who's been with the Lord four or five years now, had a more complex definition, if you please. And he wrote it this way The concept of holiness refers to purity, God's holiness involves his purity. The Bible says, the Word of God is pure. If you look at your Bible, somewhere around it, it will say, Holy Bible. Purity. God's holiness involves us purity, but the dimension of purity is the secondary meaning of the term Holy. The first and primary meaning of the term holy refers to God's transcendent majesty. Now, remember this because we're going to bring this out as we go through the message this morning. His otherness. God's other than you and I. We've talked about that in some detail over the years. The sense in which God is different from anything or anyone in the created order. The term holy in the Old Testament was used when God consecrated a people or a place or time and set it apart because it was different. In fact, we're studying the book of Exodus. We'll begin as we we journey through that great book toward the end. You'll see that God says, and separate to me the Levites, and separate to me the instruments of the Ark of the Covenant, and separate to me these tribes. The idea in Peter's epistle that we read this morning is that the basis for the call to nonconformity is that we are to be imitators of God in His different. We're to be different from the world. Just as God is different from the world, so we as His children, and heirs of the inheritance set before us in heaven, Peter talked about that uh, in uh, previous verses, in verses uh, 3 through 5, because we are his children and heirs of the inheritance set before us in heaven, we are to be different from the world. I mentioned to you last Sunday when, when I went back and, and uh, took a look at the number of uh, messages that we post to Sermon Audio and the, the audience for those messages that the least Listen to messages are almost always about holiness. Now that's sad. Because holiness is a reflection of who lives within us. If we claim that Jesus is our Savior and he is holy and he lives within us, that should motivate us by the scripture to live holy lives. Next slide if you would. The author of the book of Hebrews would put it this way. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Unholy people will not see the Lord. We spent some time in Ephesians 5 last Sunday morning talking about the wrath of God and talking about unholy people. Unholy people are not going to see the Lord. Now, his church is to be holy. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This is a great passage that you hear most of the time when, you, when there are weddings, and I have used it extensively at weddings. And we spent some time last Sunday morning in the first 20 verses of chapter 5 because context is king, And that simply means that the entire chapter deals with holiness And when we get to the end of the chapter, it still talks about holiness. Look at verse uh, 26. Uh, Actually, look, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present Her to himself a glorious church. What did Grudem say? One of God's desires and holiness is that he be glorified. What is the desire of God for the church? That we glorify him. That we don't look for excuses not to be in the Lord's house. That we are here to learn of him and to glorify him, that he might present her, uh, her to himself. A glorious church, not having spot, there's the purity, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Look at the second bullet up there. His church is to be holy. You and I make up the church. So if the church is to be holy, by implication, we're the ones that God's holiness should live in should inhabit. We cannot expect the world to be holy. In fact, we'll look at that as we go through here this morning. So Peter's talking about nonconformity. Paul talked about it in Romans 12. We, we've seen it in Ephesians 2, the first part of Ephesians 2, and almost in its entirety in Ephesians chapter 5, and obviously here in First Peter. Now go back to First Peter if you would. Now, let's talk briefly about some ways. I'll give you basically three examples, one that you, well, probably two that you will be somewhat familiar with and one that is, is talked about a great deal, but um, well, we'll see as we go through this. Sometimes nonconformity can be achieved in a superficial way. And a good example of that are the Amish people. Now, this is not to to denigrate them. This is to educate you. So the Pennsylvania and the Ohio Amish and to a certain extent here in Virginia as well, we have some obviously here. Those that are true to their faith, it's of German origin primarily. There are some Dutch folks that practice it as well that they wear clothing that contains no zippers or buttons, only hooks and eyes. In other words, those ladies, if you have dresses, you know what I'm talking about, the hooks and so forth that are there. If you go to Pennsylvania and some places of Ohio, you see these beautiful farms that, uh, and they labor from, um, like most farmers, from sunup to sundown, sometimes even longer than that, but they typically have no electricity. They don't drive tractors. They don't use machinery, so they still farm with horses and plows. In their homes, if you were to go in their home, you would not have any electrical devices. In fact, on their windows, there would not be any curtains. They think curtains are of the devil. You might have some sheets over the windows, but you won't have any curtains. Very, very stark decoration. Electricity, cars, machinery, other things that are mechanized. Now They do a very good job of, of using mechanical devices without electricity to perform some of the functions that they need. Very ingenious people. But they consider those to be evil, to be sinful, because the majority of the world uses them. Where would we be this morning without electricity? That wonderful air conditioning. Where would we be this morning without air conditioning? We would be back to the funeral parlor fans, would we not? You remember those? As noble. A venture, as this type of lifestyle is, it misses the point of nonconformity. The nonconformity that we are called to practice is an ethical nonconformity. Now, what does that mean? We are to practice God's ethic rather than the ethic of the world. Now, we're going to define that for you. Next slide. there is a distinction between ethics and morals. Now, it has been blended in our society. In fact, we use the words interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable. Morals comes from the concept of mores, if you study this, just briefly, okay? Sociologists and historians will examine the behavioral patterns of people in a given culture, and then they will describe to us how these people act, and they are then uh, the morals of that particular society. We've talked a little bit about this in the Greco-Roman Empire. We talked about paganism. We talked about the pantheon of Roman gods a few weeks ago. All these things are the mores of that society. They are the morals. They were the morals of the Roman Empire. Now, the morals of the Roman Empire were not in line with what is taught in the Scripture. So, according to Scripture, in many places, not all, but in many places, they would be considered and were considered to be immoral to believers. Let's look at our world today. As much of what the world does today, is it considered to be immoral? Well, let's examine that. Ethics... Is the study of normative principles of behavior that tell us how people should behave. Not how they behave, but how they should behave. You see the difference? So the Bible teaches us there is a great chasm, there is a great valley, there is a great gulf, if you please, between how we ought to behave. and how we actually behave. And we know that, don't we? When a man is preaching, when a man is teaching, and he comes across certain things, next slide if you would, brother. Then we tend to learn these things speak to us in a way we call it conviction. And By the way, I've preached this numbers of times, and it is true. Conviction is a grace from God. It's a grace from God. It is the Spirit of God warning us that we are not in line with the holiness of God. Now, we talked about the Amish. Let's look briefly at two historical uh, examples of a way not to be holy. And the first one is the Crusades. And I include this this morning because if you talk with people that have any education and you bring, bring uh, the, uh, the singularity of, uh, Christ, of the Christian faith of Jesus Christ before them, they almost always say, well, what about the Crusades? And you will find that most people are ignorant of the Crusades, even those that say, well, what about the Crusades? All they can remember from their study, and briefly as it may have been, is that there were Christians that went into Muslim lands and murdered them. Well, there was some prompting. Never was right. We'll see that. Four major Crusades. You can see the dates up there. I'm not going to go through them. They lasted almost 200 years. There were some minor ones after this. It took a while for them to to, uh, settle out. So let's talk briefly about the Crusades because we're talking about holiness, and many people that lived during this time thought they were holy because they engaged in the Crusades. Around 1,000 A.D., 1,100 A.D., the North North African Muslims swept through the Middle East into Constantinople. That name may not mean anything to you, but it's modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. And for centuries, Constantinople was the seat of what was considered to be the Christian faith, not Rome. And they totally ransacked Christian territory. They persecuted and humiliated Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem after many years allowing them to make their journeys uh, with uh, safe haven. Now, over time, Christians became enraged, and they engaged because they were ignorant. They engaged in similar indiscriminate, indiscriminate violence done in Christ Jesus' name. When this happens, theological errors take place. You may think you're doing right, but in actuality, We're not. And so many of the errors that uh, came out of the Crusades serve, for example, meritorious pilgrimages. In other words, making your way to Jerusalem, making your way to Rome, making your way to Constantinople, will gain you some access into heaven. Indulgences, paying your way into heaven. Penance, paying to have your sins forgiven. Vengeance performed in the name of Christ in order to avenge God's name by punishing the heathens or the pagans. Now, this went on for 200 years. Next slide. In lieu of holiness, they fostered nationalism and a militarized perspective of life. Holy wars, if you please. And when these types of things happen, Scripture becomes secondary. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Clan, tribes, honor were more important. And any offense against them, the clans, the honor, pride, and so forth, had to be avenged. In the 11th century, an early Reformation took place, and out of this came the structure for the knights, the knights in shining armor. And they were originated by the Roman Catholic Church to counter the violence within Europe by protecting the pilgrims that were making the journeys to Constantinople and to Jerusalem. The Pope at that time was a man by the name of Urban. And he was a powerful orator. He preached a sermon in November of 1095, urging the knights to stop their internal strife. Obviously, as the knights were developed in certain regions, they became nationalistic. Well, I'm a German knight. I'm more powerful than the French knight. I'm more powerful than the English knight. So forth and so on. So what happened, obviously, from the theological errors is that everybody thought they were better than the other people. Does that sound familiar? That's human nature. And so he urged them to make up, kiss and make up, and to go and battle the infidels, the Muslims. He called for them to liberate Constantinople and Jerusalem, and his sermon Included calls to righteous war. So the knights became armed pilgrims doing penance by slaughtering Muslims. Now the Muslims did the same thing. This is just an example of what we're talking about here. Next slide, if you would. Now, he said this, and this is a quote from his sermon Whoever wishes to save his soul, Remission of all sins would be granted to all who struggle against the heathens. If they died as martyrs, and many of them did, they gained everlasting glory and were saved. Is that in line with Scripture? No. So I fear that many of them went to death. Some of them did, generally Uh, and distinctively know the Lord as Savior, but many of them went to their death based on fallacious preaching, lying sermons. So three main scriptural errors came out of the Crusades. The desire to avenge honor. Secondly, The belief that you can advance the cause of Christ through physical, not spiritual, warfare. Now, we know we're in spiritual warfare. The Bible speaks of that quite often. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at angels. We'll we'll continue to look at it when we come to 2 Peter. But the fact remains is that even today, there are those that believe that we need to have some physical confrontation in order to carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the belief that performance of deeds to gain forgiveness and grace promises eternal life, some type of works salvation. Then again, I ask the question, does this sound familiar to you? Well, it should. Don't we justify our standards today? Our morals today, often claiming biblical significance in these three areas. Next slide, if you would. We accept ideas in our culture because almost everyone in the culture agrees with it. And I've just got a few up here. Abortion. Abortion. Alternative lifestyles, gambling, living in unmarried situations because it's economical or because uh, we indulge in the flesh or because we want to, or just fill in the blank. And unfortunately, this is a rampant problem. A rampant problem among young Christian men and women. Well, the culture condones it. Why do I need to do this? Well, as a believer, you're to do it because the Bible says you're to do it. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches us, among many other things. Jesus taught about it in Matthew chapter 18. It goes all the way back to the beauty of creation. That's why we're to do it. We're not to say, well, that's okay for the preacher. But he doesn't understand the situation. No, I don't. But I can assure you God does. Alistair Begg said this. I've got the quote later on, but I'll go ahead and use it right now. He said, God sees the invisible and hears the inaudible. That's true for me. God sees the invisible and he hears the inaudible. Now verse 17 follows talking about judgment and we'll see that here in just just a moment. Secondly, we find proof texts in scriptures that supposedly link the Bible with cultural convictions. As I explained to you, as explained to you many, many times, context is keen. And we're going to learn that quite a bit as we go through 1 Peter. And thirdly, we're lazy. We fail to learn Scripture. And because we fail to learn scripture, then we fail to understand how valid biblical teaching and doctrine corrects our errors. Why do you think Peter opened up 1 Peter in those first 12 verses with the doctrine? Because it corrects. And then he says, gird up your minds. It corrects the mind. That's why he did that. Why do you think Paul did that? First 11 chapters of Romans. Because it corrects our mind. And our minds need to be corrected. We think fallaciously. We think falsely. We lie to ourselves. And then we make the lie out to be truth by denying God. We'll see that here in just a moment. R.C. Sproul, quote him again. And I'm going to use this quote when we move into uh, verse 22. I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that the God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a technique, in anything and everything except where God has placed it, His Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of God. When we were in the epistle of 2 John, and John opened that great epistle that he was writing to um, a lady and her children, the elect lady and her children, he says, he reminded them that I am praying for you spiritually. I want you to be healthy, but far more important is your and my spiritual health. And we have it listed in our prayer list. We are to pray for the spiritual health and development of the children of God here at Flat Creek. Next slide. So that's two the Amish, the Crusades is the third one, the moral majority. That's uh, a more contemporary example of people trying to be holy. Or at least trying to make the culture holy. And when we talk about culture war, culture wars, sometimes it's been largely generated by the by the evangelicals to moralize the unconverted. Well, let's let's make sure that, and it's a wonderful thing, believe me, that the Supreme Court has sent the decision for abortion back to the states. They didn't eliminate it. That's a lie. They didn't eliminate it. Sent it back to the state. That's a wonderful thing. But what we attempt to do is moralize the unconverted. And this started with a moral moral majority. By the way, that was a phrase uh, that was coined by Chuck Colson, who worked for President Nixon. Many, many years before Dr. Falwell used it. This became the religious right. It tried to moralize America. It elevated uh, its biblical ethics. Nothing wrong with that. But when you attempt to take that and moralize the unconverted, you've forgotten the gospel. People don't get better and then get saved. Jesus takes you just as you are, but he's not going to leave you just as you are. Our culture has refused consistently for the past 40 years to be moralized. We just listed some of them in the previous slide. It's refused to be moralized. And unfortunately, this has infiltrated the church. Let's, let's be a little more accommodating. Let's make the, the services seeker-friendly. Don't speak so loudly Don't speak about the blood. Don't speak about crucifixion. And whatever you do, don't speak about personal sin. Because that upsets people. Of course it upsets people. It upset me before I became a believer. It still upsets me when the Spirit of God moves in my heart to challenge me in areas in my life that need to be corrected. It ought to. All God's people said. All God's people said. It ought to challenge our souls. That's what Sproul said. Nobody believes there's power in the word anymore. And the reason is because the word is not preached. And so when you hear a loud mouth preacher, then you say, well, I just don't like him. Our culture refuses to be moralized. It refuses to follow the Judeo Christian morality. And why? Because it doesn't know Christ. It's not because they want to be better, it's because they reject Christ. Our responsibility, next to last bullet, is not to moralize the unconverted. That's not what Jesus called us to do. That's not what Peter is doing here. He's teaching about being non-conforming to the world. It's to preach the gospel so that the moral center and the immoral center Be converted. I heard a sermon many, many years ago, and the title of the sermon was Good People Go to Hell. The moral sinner and the immoral sinner be converted. Our responsibility is redemptive, not political. And so those three examples, I want you to remember those this morning if you don't remember anything else. Attempting to be nonconforming by resisting certain uh, benefits of this particular time that we live in. The crusades that attempted to convert the heathen through righteous wars. And then the moral majority that attempted to make, to moralize the culture. Holiness is not morality. Holiness is purity. Holiness is a byproduct of redemption. That's what Peter will start to explain beginning in verse 18. And it rests on the completed work of Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. So those examples I hope you understand. And challenge anyone that says, well what about the crusades? Challenge them. Well did you know that there were four crusades and this is what happened and so forth? And then they'll get that RCA Victor dog look. Next slide. Peter talks about this extensively beginning in verse 18 and why should we be holy? Well We looked at uh, some passages of Scripture last week in verses 15 and 16. God called us to holiness. We went back to the book of Leviticus. We looked at those. The Holy Spirit remakes us in the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 speaks to this, Philippians chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. But I want us to focus this morning on the time remaining on verse 17. We're to be holy because God is our judge. Now, if we don't like holiness, we don't like the word judge. But they go together. And thankfully, only God can be our judge. Verse 17 says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. we to be holy because... God is both our father. Now this is speaking to believers. This is not an unbeliever. Peter is writing to believers. An unbeliever does not have God as father. But for believers, he is both our father and our judge. And yes, believers will be judged. While we are pilgrims in this world... We're to think of God with familial love, we'll see that as we go through it, and retain in awe of his might and his holiness. And the third point, also from verse 17, and this is great, God the Father, because he is holy, he is an impartial judge. When, why is there so much disturbance now over some of the decisions that the Supreme Court has made? Well, you should be able to easily figure that out. When the Democrats are in control of the Senate, then they can nominate judges and easily get them through so that they carry on their agenda. Now, judges are, not, are supposed to be impartial, but we all know that's not the case. And we are fooling ourselves to think so. We're human. Same thing for Republicans. So there's a hue and cry now because there's, oh, there's this imbalance in the trial. No. They're supposed to judge by the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and so forth. Well, God is an impartial judge, and He's going to judge according to His word. We know that from the book of Revelation. God doesn't look at the ex- external. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. He does not look at the external. doesn't look at how wonderful we look this morning, how beautiful and how handsome and how um, our hair is fixed just right and we look this way and we... Do this thing and our homes look. God's not looking at that. This is a great passage of scripture. I give you, just to to lead up to this a little bit, look at verse 32 of chapter 15. Then Samuel said, bring Agag king of the Amalekites here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And we see why. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of the death is past, but Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now this is a prophet. And I would say he's a mighty prophet. And Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Get over it. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, where I have provided myself a king among his sons. Who is that king? David. Now David wasn't, he certainly didn't live a, a holy life either many, 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 in many cases. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice for the Lord and then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I uh, named for you. So Samuel did what he said. Went to Bethlehem. Elders of the town trembled at his coming. Why? Why were they trembling? The prophet's coming. Why? Because of what happened to Agag? And the word of the Lord. Do you come peaceably, they say. Do you come peaceably? And he says, Peaceably, I have come. Sanctify yourselves, set yourselves apart, be holy. The holiness of God should drive us to. drive us to peace. Now, fear. I look on this congregation this morning, those of you that are tuning in and watching. Fear is endemic. In other words, it's pervasive in the human spirit. We all fear something. Sawyer the other day was Cutting grass. And Megan and I were watching him. And Sawyer does not like bees. He on vacation he was stung three or four times. He was fishing and apparently he got hung up and his lure got hung up and over in the weeds he goes and got stung and so a bee started flying around his head while he was cutting grass. And you oh Lord, you would have thought the world had come to an end. Fear is endemic, and you've got fears, and I've got fears. We've, it's so endemic, we even have phobias. And a phobia is a, an exaggerated, illogical fear of something or some situation. Next slide. Now, bear with me, and this is, we'll close with this. God is Other. And there's a special fear of otherness called xenophobia. The fear or hatred of strangers or foreigners or anything related. Mike was talking this week about being in, in Washington, D.C. and seeing all manner of people. Of course, you <laughs> you do. I remember the last trip my father-in-law uh, and, and mother-in-law went on. Robbie and I took them to... To Washington to go to the Smithsonian and I remember uh, I, I hailed for a taxi which I had done hundreds of times probably in, in my travels and this taxi this big van comes up because about, about six of us and um, so I opened the door and The man that was driving the taxi was from Ethiopia. And so my father-in-law, we got into the van, and I sat in the front with him and told him where we were going. And just before my father-in-law got into the van, he said, do you think we can trust him? And I said, "Uh, Junior, and I called him Junior. I said, yeah, we can trust him. He said, how do you know? I said, because the next cab that we hail is probably going to be driven by a Muslim. Xenophobe. And it's, Hey, we all have it. We all do. There is no such thing as a person that is free from race or racial hatred on this earth. None. Xenophobe. God is the one we fear most because he's other. He's not like you and I. Thankfully, he's the ultimate stranger. He's the ultimate alien. He's the ultimate foreigner. He's holy, and we know we are not. And because he is holy, our fear is not the healthy fear that Peter is talking about. In fact, many people dread God. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's called dread. Because he is too great. And he's too awesome. He's too other than you and I. Now, our phobia is due to our sin. His will, his way are too difficult for us. God. Threatens our security. He threatens our comfort. And we don't like that. I don't like that. Yes, he is other. But he is also compassionate. He is also merciful. He is also gracious unlike human beings because as the psalmist says he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust Peter says if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear in familial fear and an understanding that God loves you in Jesus Christ he will go on to say in verse 18 he starts to talk about our redemption in Jesus Christ so the question this morning is do you fear God not dread him don't loathe God Fear, respect, obey, non conform, have your ignorance removed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. You know that you are far removed from us, but in the person of Jesus Christ, As the scripture says, we that were far away, that were far off, have now been brought close by Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise that you leave to us this morning. We do pray you would have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service this day. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing a verse of a of an invitation hymn this morning and give you an opportunity if you do not know the Lord then the Lord is still your impartial judge but he will judge and he judges on the basis of the word and his son Jesus Christ so we encourage you this morning to if the spirit of God is moving in your heart and your soul that you confess your sins before him and ask the Lord Jesus to save you and according to the word the great promises of God he will we can't save you, but we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we sing this morning, we want you to make your way out of the pew to the front, and we'll be glad, we'll be joyful in order to do that for you. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord is your Savior. Maybe you need to follow the Lord in Believer's Baptism. We're going to um, to... Celebrate the ordinance of baptism next Sunday morning. We encourage you to come. Maybe you need to unite with uh, the church on statement of faith or transfer of letter from a church of like faith. Not from any church, from a church of like faith. So we encourage you to make that decision this morning. child of God, the holiness of God speaks to us. It always convicts because we know, especially where we are in the culture that we live in. So what number, Brother Mike, are we going to sing this morning? 283. 283 if the Lord-